The preaching of God's Word then is found in Luke 17, and particularly at verses 7 through 10. Luke 17, verses 7 through 10. Christ, speaking to His disciples, says, But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him, By and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink." Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise, ye, when ye, have, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to do. Thus far the word of God. As we turn our attention to this passage, we, have, we remember the continuation of a context So Christ, in the preceding passages, has been exhorting His disciples unto very particular aspects of faithfulness in His kingdom. And so He has testified most recently of being watchful against offenses, that is, snares and stumbling points. So we're to watch for them. You can think, children, of a soldier who is going through enemy territory and knows that the enemy has planted mines, landmines, and there can be trip wires, and there can be trigger points that if they step on, so soon as they release the pressure from it, the mechanism uh, erupts, and they themselves, if not killed, are dramatically injured together with their uh, fellow soldiers. Well, the same is true for the Christian. We stand in enemy territory. We rejoice to know that the Lord is advancing His kingdom, and that increasingly those are being converted unto Christ. And yet, in this world, where Satan still works, there are snares. And if we were to update the language and idea, there are landmines that are planted. And we have to be watchful for that. You know, parents, you can think of it this way. There are places in Sri Lanka after their civil war, that are actually walled off, fenced off, because the landmines from the war have not yet been cleared. They've not yet been raked. And so think if you lived in Sri Lanka, and you had children, you wouldn't say to your children, well, disregard the wall, disregard the fence, go ahead and run through the field. You would be watchful, securing them from entering into that dangerous position. And you can think of those guards who are appointed to clean up landmines, how carefully and exacting they're watching for these things. But Christ is not only interested in our watching against them, but in our watching of ourselves, that we would set no snare to others. That there's to be a tremendous watch over our speech, over our actions, over all that we're doing, so that we do not present the least bit of stumbling or snaring of our brothers and sisters. That demands far more than outward rigor. It demands an internal, a spiritual fellowship with Christ. You know what it is to be forced to do something. Perhaps you know what it is to be forced to do something by your conscience even. But there's a world of difference between being forced to do something as by constraint outside of us 
and being brought to do something inwardly of delight. And when we have the inward delight and the inward watchfulness, though there is tremendous energy being uh, used, there is a willingness to use such energy. Well, you'll notice Christ then went on to talk of watching against a bitter spirit. Take heed, verse 3, to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. If he repent, forgive him. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, seven times in a day, turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. You and I think we have accomplished much when one sin, so flagrantly done against us, is able to be forgiven by us. We're ready to say, well, that is extraordinary what I've just done. This person who spoke so wickedly against me, who treated me so wickedly, you know, I've done something wondrous. And yet Christ says, not just seven times, but if seven times in a day you're to forgive that one. And so you understand, as we considered last week, the apostles seeing through the point. They see that in order to attain unto this standard, not just in these particulars, but in truth, all that is required of the disciple following Christ, there is the need for a source and supply that is not found in themselves. In other words, you don't have the power of yourself to perform the slightest obedience in why the apostles say, increase our faith. And yet, as we saw last week, it's not as if it's great faith that's required in order for obedience. We don't speak against the seeking of greater faith, but we what Christ responded. If you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, If you have whatever faith, however small, however insignificant, whatever portion it is, if you exercise that faith, all of these things which seem as if they are impossible to overcome would be overcome and you'd be able to follow me. And it's then when we see that that we understand what Christ goes into. Because what he's getting at is the apostles have seen the greatness of true and gospel and Christian obedience, and saying this is a thing that no mere mortal of their own strength can attain. This is a thing that none of us as apostles can do in our own strength. So give us faith. And Christ says, it's not that you need more faith. It's that you simply need to exercise the faith you have. And you'll be performing these wondrous works of obedience that then he says, as it were, with warning. Yet when you start to exercise faith and you start to deny yourself and you take up your cross and follow Him, when you husbands start to love your wives sincerely, earnestly, purely, as Christ loved the church, when you wives start to submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, no longer grumbling, no longer withholding and cold-shouldering and all of these wicked things, you parents no longer cease or rather cease to provoke your children unto wrath while training them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And when your children start to obey your parents in the Lord, you're not to sit back and say, give me my laurels now. Give me my praise now. Give me my honor now. 
For look what I've done. I've done what no other one can do. Christ says through this passage, when ye shall, verse 10, have done all those things which are commanded you. Think of all those things which are commanded you. When you've done them all, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. He gets there by a comparison. You see it in the text. He uses the relationship of an earthly master and an earthly servant. Now this takes some cultural work for us. In our day and age, the work has so shifted that those who have authority sort of bow unto the servants and are always providing them, you know, what do you want? What do you need? And so on. Whether there be good or bad in that, the point is this. Our culture doesn't really allow us to enter into the text. Christ is dealing with an era, an age, where when one with authority spoke, the servant was to do. And we aren't merely speaking of slavery in our own history. Christ isn't speaking of that, though there's something, as it were, that might be instructive. He's talking about that relationship of a master and a servant in his day. And in his day, those who had authority were to be honored as authority. And so you'll notice, he says, if you have a servant who's plowing or feeding the cattle, and you say, when he's come from the field, go, or will you say, go and sit down to meet? And the point is, no, your servant. He's been working, doing his work. Your day's ended doing your business. His day's ended doing his business. And yet his work is still to provide food for you. And so you won't say, you know, you take yours first. He says, no, the relationship is this. Say to, you'll say to him, make ready wherewith I may sup, I may eat, and gird yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunken and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. And when that's done, Christ says, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow that is, I think not. We don't go to the servant, Christ says, and say, it's amazing what you did. It's overwhelming. You know, you've had a hard day's work. It's been overwhelming for you, and yet you still obeyed my word. That's not the response of a master to a servant. The master comes with expectation. The servant comes with expectation. This is my calling. This is my role. I'm called to serve this master. And so when he says this, I do that. And I don't at the end of the day come and say, well, I'm, you know, I've done my service, but I'm waiting for something. And the master, well, what are you waiting for? Well, you know, I've had a hard day's work. I've done all of these things. And I've served you. So I'm waiting for you to pat me on the head and encourage me and so forth and say, great job, what an amazing thing. Notice, it's Christ who says, that doesn't happen. This is not the way it is. But there's a point that is beyond the reality of human masters and servants, he says, when ye, my servants, my disciples, have done all of those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. What does that mean? It means we've done nothing but what you've demanded. We've never gone above 
and beyond. There are awards given to people in our nation, in the military, who are awarded for going above and beyond their duty. I want you to understand this very clearly. In Christ's kingdom, there is no ability to go above and beyond your duty. Your duty is to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Your duty is to love your neighbor as yourselves. Your duty is to deny yourselves, take up your crosses, following Him. It is to die to yourselves. It is to mortify your sin. It is to put off, even if necessary, the cutting off of your right hand, the plucking out of your right eye. And if we have been brought to do that, at the end of the day, we don't stand waiting for Christ to say, it's amazing how you've gone above what I've asked. The most radical obedience is but faithfulness in His kingdom. That's Christ's point. There's no room, in other words, for even the whisper of pride. There's no room, in other words, for the sense of, I've done it. Now, we have to balance this with what Christ says elsewhere because He will say to His people, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so it's not as if Christ is getting a point across to say there's no gra- or, or love, there's no delight in the obedience of His people. But in context, what He's getting at is this. He knows us. He, so soon as we start to say, you know what? The reason I'm struggling with obedience here is because I'm actually not exercising faith. He knows that as soon as his people start to exercise faith, they'll start to see greater conformity to his law. But he knows that residing within our hearts still is this idol in the shape and appearance of ourselves. And that we tend to love ourselves. And so soon as we start to rise in obedience, we start to sit back and say, look at this. Look what I'm doing. Look, and isn't it amazing how it appears? We start to get this perspective. Look how I'm doing better than they are. Look how I'm more faithful than that one. Look how I'm more faithful than this one. Look how I'm more faithful than I was before. And instead, as we saw in David, and as Christ is getting at giving thanks and praise to Christ, the temptation that we face when we start to make greater conformity to His Word is a sinful contentment of saying, this is what God wants. He wants me. He needs what I'm doing. And we start to put the focus on ourselves. And so what Christ is getting at is not the sense that He has no delight, no love in His people and their willing sacrifice and faithfulness. No, He delights in the broken and contrite heart. He delights in obedience over sacrifice. He loves His disciples. He calls them no longer servants, but friends. All of that is true. But it's true as well that those whom He calls friends will never add to what He requires. It's true as well that the calling of them friends is a calling of grace and not merited reward. It's true that His love to us is real and He truly does delight in our serving of Him. But the love that He has for us in our serving of Him is not because we've bought something from Him that He now owes to us. 
His love to us in our obedience. His love to us as His disciples. His delight in us. His singing praise over us. All of those things, we have to see this and clearly remember it, is by His grace and His grace alone. And so He's helping us to maintain the posture of one who graciously obeys. Who, as David says, what we're giving to you is what you've given to us to give to you. My denying of myself, if I say it more fully, is my denying of myself because you've given me grace to deny myself. My obeying of your commandments, if I say it more fully, is my obeying of your commandments because you've worked within me to will and to do of all of your commandments. My forsaking of the world, my despising of my husband and wife and children in comparison to you, my love to you which is all surpassing, is because of your grace to me. That if that were taken, I would not be left as an unprofitable servant I would be left as an imprisoned slave to the lusts and the vile wickedness of my heart. When we obey even in all things, we are to realize that we've added nothing to what He requires and that we've done whatever we've done solely by His grace. This is the point. Gracious obedience performed by believers, is performed by grace. And it never goes beyond what God has required. At best, it only conforms to what God has required. In our world, we have various services. You might order, for instance, a cake for a birthday. And you go there perhaps on a Thursday, you pick up the cake and it says happy birthday and so on. You've ordered this cake with this kind type of batter and this type of icing and this design and so on. You're picking it up for the birthday and then the one who provides it to you for that glad occasion says, you know what, I know that you ordered this cake, but as a special treat, I'm throwing in these extra cookies or this small gift and so on. And so the servant right, the one making the cake, is doing something more than what was asked. Now, whatever the purpose of that is, you can get the understanding. Here's the point. When Christ asks us to do something, there is not only the reality that we don't, but the reality that we cannot ever do something more than what He's already required. We don't throw something in as an enhancement Because all he requires is comprehensive love to God and love to neighbor. And we'll never be able to go beyond that. There's much that flows from this. You'll know that there are so-called works of superiorigation by Roman Catholicism that says, well, there are works that God requires, but then we, by extra works, can go above what God requires. And that which is above is able to be added to what is known as the treasury of the saints, whose extra merit is able to be applied to others. Brethren, here's the point. The Bible very clearly repudiates such a doctrine. There's no ability first to do anything above what God has required. Regardless of the absolute superstition 
and wickedness of saying there's a treasury of merit from these extra works. But what we see here is the mark of what our forefathers would call new obedience. You know what obedience is? We'll think about that. But new obedience is that obedience that flows from a new principle. It's the obedience that flows not out of mere conscience, not merely out of, I see this is right, but rather out of humility and grace and love, the Spirit of God transforming us. And brethren, here's something to realize. Hardly is it the point that those outside point that those who have wayward doctrine struggle with this, who say, well, the Ten Commandments don't matter and the obedience doesn't matter. The ones who struggle with this truth most are those who see the requirements of God's law. And so it's we who have to take attention and give attention to this exhortation that we maintain and cultivate this loving flow of obedience which will express itself in humility. So to help us to consider this gracious obedience by God's grace performed by believers, consider three things. Firstly, the nature of new obedience. Secondly, the difference of new obedience. And quickly, the third being the posture of new obedience. So what is new obedience? You'll notice that the text doesn't use the expression new obedience, but it is expressing what we might very clearly see to be obedience. But it's of a different sort, right? The Pharisees obeyed in many things, but their obedience was repudiated. It was rejected. And there were those in the Old Covenant who did many things outwardly, appropriately, and yet theirs was rejected. But here is an obedience that is true and right. And when we search the Scriptures, we see this theme coming up again and again. And so there is false obedience. There is misguided obedience. There is um, wrongly desired or, or pursued obedience. And there is good and faithful and gracious obedience. That's one aspect of what's before us. So notice a few things about this type of obedience that is performed by believers. Notice firstly that it is performed by believers. This is an important distinction. Being in the covenant is not being saved. Children, you need to know this. You can be instructed in all the things of God's covenant and be dead in sins. You can be instructed in what you should be doing. You can be doing those things, reading the Bible, obeying God's law, honoring your parents in outward ways, coming to church, and being different from the world in those things, and yet inside be full of dead men's bones. Because new obedience does not look, as it were, at the outward expression alone. It doesn't flow from what's in man's natural strength. It flows from a different principle. And so in context, remember, it's Christ who has asked, increase our faith. He then extols the least faith. And the point is, the least faith will lead to obedience. This is fundamental to what's before us. If we miss this point, we miss a key point of Christ's uh, warning. We have to see that true obedience does not merely mind the law as it is holy. It does that. 
It doesn't neglect that. It loves that. It does not merely respect the law as it is a requirement. It does do that. It acknowledges that. But true obedience flows from faith drawing Christ. And it's an immediate question, is it not, for us to ask, is my obedience of whatever sort it is consciously the fruit of knowing the person of Christ drawing from Him? In other words, the source of this obedience, whatever term you wish to use, obedience in its truth, new obedience, gracious obedience, our catechism uses the expression new obedience under its question, what is repentance unto life? It is saving grace, and it goes on to speak of the one who repents unto life, that he endeavors after new obedience. This expression is a deeply understood term in our heritage. It's speaking of obedience of the new man. There is much that the old man can do. Do you remember when the rich young ruler came to Christ? And he says, what must I do? And Christ says, well, you know the law. You know the commandments. This, 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 this. What did the young man say? I've kept all these from my youth. Christ doesn't say, time out, let's talk. You know, I know that you're saying that. But your life is pretty scandalous. And you don't hear any voices. Think of it, he was the rich young ruler. (coughs) And so... He had a public face to those around him. No one stands up and says, that's a lie. Paul says of himself before converted that regarding the law, he was false. Here's the Man by his fallen nature can outwardly conform to God's law. Jonathan Edwards makes this point as others before him, John Calvin makes this point, Augustine makes this point in a variety of ways. They all speak various ways of the ability we have, for instance, to use our feet to take ourselves to the assembly of the saints and worship God. In other words, it's no spiritual and gracious thing for us to avoid the marketplace on the Lord's Day and come to the gathering of the church on the Lord's Day. It's no supernatural and spiritual thing for us to avoid the sin of fornication in the outward way. It's nothing, for instance, for one to obey another one in the outward way. And so you can read, for instance, the biographies of slaves in our own nation. And it's not their written biography, but interviews. And they will speak at times. It's a moving testimony of what they suffered. Some of them speak of the grace of God, which is truly beautiful, and we'll get to some of that later. But some of them, in their interviews, speak of their resolve never to flinch at the command, never to mutter anything when whipped, because they would not give their master the pleasure of seeing it. Now, whereas there's something virtuous there, there's nothing gracious there. You and I know what it is to do things similar. Well, I know what's right. I'm going to do it just because it's right and I'm going to do it. And in the end, I'm going to be able to stand up. I mentioned before, 
an athlete who had performed some notable feat in a sport was asked, who would you like to thank? You know, at this time it's customary. I'd like to thank my mom and my dad and all the coaches. And literally, word for word, these are his, his words. Well, I'd like to thank myself. I did all of the work. I did all of these things. You see, the point is, natural obedience is possible in our own strength. It will not exhaust what God requires, but it will put on the appearance of it to the world. And that puffs up the person doing it. That is the source of outward and carnal obedience. It is the reason that Christ says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look upon another, a woman, not your wife, with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You're guilty of adultery. What's he getting at? The law does not only regard outward actions. In many ways, those are the easiest things, and well within your power, converted or not, to do. He's saying the law actually touches on and regulates the heart as well. Well, here's the point. New obedience, by God's grace, has tapped into the source from which the wellspring of life flows unto our souls and makes us not only constrained and compelled and forced outwardly, but rather, as Paul says, the love of Christ constrains us. There's an inward motion now. There's a delight now to do the will of God from the heart. Where does this come from? It comes from God's grace. This is a preeminent promise of the Lord repeated in a variety of places. Notice, for instance, in Ezekiel in chapter 36, a promise as we trust you're familiar with of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36 and at verse 26, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Notice the point. The new source does not lead to not caring about God's commandments. The new source doesn't make us say we don't care about the law of God. The new source changes the reason. It changes the motive. It's not just the fear of the lash. It's not just the pride of our hearts. It's not just conformity to the outward display. There's now an inward desire. I, as Christ says, delight to do thy will. And as Paul says, quoting from the Scriptures, I delight in the inward man. There's a wrong divide on two ways regarding obedience. The wrong divide is to say, as we might be tempted to do, what matters is the outward performance. And you start to discern that when people are only concerned about that. Always talking about it harping on it. They're always bringing it up. This thing, that thing, the other thing. And that's as it were, all their eye is latched upon. And it becomes a new form of Pharisaism. All they consider are 
the words and the actions and the appearance and the steps and the measurements and all of these things. And whereas in some things they're most surely right, in the fundamental thing, they are themselves most erroneous because they have missed and divided the outward from the inward. But there's the alternate error, which is to say the outward doesn't matter. We don't care about commandments. You know, we're no longer under the law. We're under grace, will often be the kind of expression. And they'll say, so it doesn't really matter. You know, you're so concerned about the law, the Ten Commandments. You're so concerned about, you know, keeping the Sabbath day holy. You're so concerned about, you know, the way that a husband should love his wife and the way that a wife should submit to her husband and all of these things. You're so concerned about that. All that we care about is our desires. Here's the point. In the economy of God's kingdom, it's not an either-or. It's we who misrepresent it into an either-or. In God's economy, it's always a both-and. A new spirit will I give you. A new heart will I put within you. And you will keep my commandments. Do you see? As the Lord increases faith, as He gives us grace to exercise faith, it doesn't lead us away from the commandments of God. It leads us with new motives and new longings and new love to walk in accordance to the commandments of God. And so notice, we talked about what new obedience is as to its source. Notice what obedience is as to its standard. Christ says it, When ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you. The requirements are what God has commanded. The standard is not my feeling. The standard is not my motive, even. The standard still remains what God has explicitly commanded. This, of course, means that there's no real obedience to man-made rules. You know, we can obey them, of course. That's not obedience to God. We may have our own understandings of steps I need to take in order to keep the law of God. But so soon as I make those things the standard for others, I'm violating the liberty of conscience which Christ has secured for others. You know, so a common example that we can use is God has everywhere forbidden drunkenness. We know that. Anyone who would say otherwise is clearly evidencing that they have not read and understood the Bible. Drunkenness is a sin. Drunkards, as God's Word says, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, some, for a variety of reasons, say, well, if that's the case, then I'm never going to drink alcohol. And they might make the allowance, as they should, of course, for alcohol in the Lord's Supper, but they might say, you know, for myself, I'll never drink alcohol, because alcohol can lead to drunkenness. And since alcohol can lead to drunkenness, I'm going to forego alcohol. And so they might say things like, we're never going to go to a restaurant that serves alcohol. If it has the name pub in it, or bar, like this bar and grill, I'm never going to go to it, because people might be getting drunk or other things as that. All of that is fully permissible to the individual conscience, but none of it is permissible to lord over the consciences of others. Because what's forbidden is drunkenness. And we can multiply instances of this. I trust this is 
nothing new or challenging to us. The point is to see this. New obedience walks in, we might say it this way, ancient paths, eternal paths. So though it's new from its principle, it follows after the old paths of God's law. And so Paul warns against this. You know, there were people in the church of Colossians that were saying things like, you shouldn't touch or taste or handle these foods and drinks. And he says, listen, it has the appearance, it has the appearance of piety, but it's bereft of the power of God. It denies its power. The purpose is this. God renews us to walk in His law, not man's. There's a well-known story of Charles Spurgeon who had welcomed a guest minister to preach. And the man got on to, well, you know, Christians should never smoke tobacco and Christians should never touch alcohol and so on. And Spurgeon listened to it all quite patiently. The man came down. Spurgeon ascended the pulpit and said, Brothers and sisters, I rejoice in this dear brother's zeal for God and for his kingdom. But I have enough trouble trying to uphold the Ten Commandments. I don't need another commandment not warranted of God's law. That's the point. The man may have his personal reason to hold unto those views, but he has no ability to lord it over the consciences of others because the conscience is secure and alone held uh, to Christ's authority. So the standard is God's revealed will, His commandments. It's a new principle that leads us to walk in the old paths of God's law, thus new obedience. What's the need for it? Brethren, fundamentally, the need for new obedience to produce it is conversion. Children, you need to learn God's law. Young people, you need to learn God's law. Adults, you need to learn God's law. And you need to make efforts to bring yourself under God's law. But realize this, you can train a parrot to speak words that are pure. You can teach an ape to do certain performances that are right, but you cannot cause them to know and love what they're doing. The same is true of people in God's covenant. Children, you need to be converted. You need the grace of God to change your life and open your eyes and bring you unto Christ lest you be mere hypocrites, putting on the mask of true godliness, while underneath in your hearts is a desire that is contrary to it. Paul knew that. I was alive once apart from the law. His life was outwardly conformed in many ways. But the commandment came which said, Thou shalt not covet. Sin revived in me, and I died. He realized And which commandment was it but that which is most spiritual? Thou shalt not covet. That though outwardly he was conformed, inwardly he was bereft of the grace of God. New obedience is the fruit of conversion. The Spirit of God transforming the nature. And new obedience grows by the exercise of those graces which God plants in the soul at conversion. Preeminent among them, faith. Thus, if you and I wish to grow in new obedience, we ought to seek the increase of faith. Well, we press on 
What's the difference of new obedience? Well, you can see one difference in this implied. Christ says in verse 10, When ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to A mark of true obedience, new obedience, gracious obedience. We can simply say Christian obedience. We could simply say, where they're not you know, counterfeits, we could simply say the mark of obedience, a mark, is humility. There's a humble disposition. There's a generosity of sorts which looks to God and says, and what a hypothetical it is, when you have done all things that have commanded you. Who here could stand up and answer yes to this question? Has anyone here ever done all that God requires? No child, no adult, no minister, no elder, no deacon, no apostle could stand and say, well, I don't mean to brag, but everything that God has commanded, I've done. I've hated all that I'm supposed to hate. I've loved all that I'm supposed to love. I've spoken everything I'm supposed to speak. I've not spoken what I'm not supposed to speak. I've put my hands to what I'm supposed to put my hands to. I've withdrawn them from what I'm supposed to withdraw them from. I've done everything, heart, mind, soul, body, that you require. None of us can do that. Brethren, we count it something of tremendous joy when that which is stumbling us in the most plain and basic ways is by a degree overcome. Think of it. We're told, pray always. Pray at all times. And we become convinced and convicted, my prayers are few and far between. And so we start to be convicted of this, and we start to say, Lord, increase my faith and thus lead me not only to say, I'm going to mark out these hours, I'm going to mark out this time, but I'm actually going to seek the engagement of my soul, communion with Christ. And we do that, and what happens? We start to look back, and we say, you know what? Something tremendous has been accomplished here. Or perhaps we've been negligent with family worship, and we say, you know what? We're letting everything intervene and interrupt this course. So, you know, my children's schedules, my schedule, my work schedule, my traveling, my this, my that, my other thing, my tiredness. And we say, enough's enough. I'm going to establish family worship in my home. Brethren, however hard that is, it's far from impossible. There are things that can be changed, and we change them. But we start to say, I don't just want the activity. I want that heart religion in my heart, in my wife's heart, in my children's heart. I want us to desire it and to delight in it. And God be praised. Little by little, the habit starts to take shape. And more than that, we start to delight and say, you know what? It's been a long time coming. We actually look forward to gathering as a family. And the children are starting to come and they actually have questions and they're engaged. And when they're called upon to pray, their prayers are actually about things that are meaningful and weighty. And we start to say, as we look back, look what's happened. None of us would say at that point that our family worship is to the standard it ought to be. But all of us are willing to say the Lord's done something. And then creeps in a subtle temptation because then we hear about those who aren't doing it. And within our souls enters this whisper of a breath that puffs up our souls and says subtly, not in the explicit language, but ministers to our pride and says, look what you've done. 
And how is it that they're struggling with it? How is it that they're ignoring it? You see, what happens when we rely upon ourselves, when we start to rest upon our laurels, as the expression is, receiving our crown, we start to make much of what we've done. And thus, necessarily, we make little of what others do. Or we make much of their disobedience and much of our obedience. But you see, what Christ is getting at is gracious, new, Christian obedience, even were it to fulfill all that God requires, has not even the thought of a whisper of saying, look what I've done. But it says, God, I am but an unprofitable servant. Historically, the difference between what we're calling new obedience and the other is the difference between new obedience and legal obedience. You can read of this in many works, well worth our time. But the fundamental point is this, even a Christian is tempted to return to the path of legal obedience. And you know this by experience. When, for instance, you engage in certain actions and you start to receive great strength to your soul based on what you've done. Or, more subtle than that, you start to not just see the sins of others, but you become embittered. Not, as we'll see this evening, the Lord willing, rightly affected, but embittered against them. The brow furrows, you become argumentative. Our series on wisdom, you know, has repudiated that kind of activity, which I need, and doubtlessly the world of Christians need today, that wisdom is that which seeks to establish peace. Well, here's the point. New obedience differs from old obedience, legal obedience, natural obedience, in that in all that it does, it does acknowledging the glory and greatness of God and the littleness and insignificance of ourselves. The best picture of this is on the last day. Christ will give to his people crowns, right? What does everyone with a crown do? They take it off of their heads and they lay it at the feet of Christ. That's the expression. You've crowned me, but I'm placing the crown where it belongs. It doesn't belong upon me. This isn't us quibbling with Christ. It's not us saying, well, you know, you've sort of done wrong here in giving me this. It's us acknowledging the source from which our obedience has come. Yes, I acknowledge, O oh God, that by your grace you've led me to obey, but I have to acknowledge then that the crown doesn't go to me, it goes to you. God is to receive all praise. At the end of the day, whatever I've done that is faithful, I've done by your grace. Thus, the difference is that true and new and gracious and Christian obedience is always enamored with Christ, always loves Christ, always glorifies Christ, and always abases itself. Paul says, I am the least, I'm less than the least of the apostles. 
he puts himself, and we could sort of quibble with Paul and say, Paul, let's talk realistically here for a moment. Your travels far exceed, it seems, all the travels of all the other apostles put together. Your sufferings seem to exceed all the sufferings of all the other apostles put together. And Paul says, no, you've missed it. I'm less than the least of all saints. I'm beneath them. What is he saying? He's giving the expression of all that we've just covered. It's not me. I've not been the source. It's God who has given me this. I am low. I am little. I am nothing. God deserves everything that we ever give to Him. It is never something that we add to what He deserves. And never is it something that we add to what He commands. True obedience differs from false obedience in its consuming love and giving glory to God and its lessening and minimizing of ourselves. When you come to the presence of an exercised Christian, you find a few things. They never major on the minors and they never speak of themselves as of any worth. Now, it's not that they're just bad-mouthing themselves as that false kind of piety is. Instead, their mouth is full of Christ. Their mouth loves to speak about Christ. They love to glory in Christ. They love to give praise to Christ. They can go toe-to-toe with every principle, every doctrine, every practice. But what's astounding is their overwhelming carriage, posture, and if a minister, their ministry is fixed upon the person and work of Christ. That's what we need, brethren. We need every single one in this room to have the reality of new obedience that minimizes themselves, that minimizes their perspectives, that minimizes their takes, and magnifies the glory of God, the grace of God, the love of God. Because in truth, It's only when that happens that our obedience will flow rightly. Well, very quickly, what's the posture? We only have time to say it. The posture of new obedience is the utmost of humility. Close with this. We ought to assess ourselves, and we can do so with this question, am I concerned about obedience? And we may be able to say, I am concerned. I see the errors of the world and I say, this is ridiculous. How can anyone say God's commandments don't matter? God be praised if we've been brought that far. God be praised if we've been brought far enough to say, I delight to know the commandments of God. That's great. Delight to know the law of God. That's great. But there's a difference of delighting to know them and delighting in them. And the only way that we delight in them is by delighting in the one who gave them. And so, if we're concerned about obedience, the question we need to ask is, what kind? Am I sincerely concerned out of love to Christ to conform myself to Him, to take no praise or glory unto myself, but to give Him all the praise and glory? That if my life is so transformed that the rest of the world says, never was there such a godly man or woman as that one, I would be sincere in saying, All glory to God, for never have I done anything beyond what He's required, and never have I done anything without His first giving me the grace to do it. By what ability, by what power 
Do you pursue your obedience? And brethren, there's a big difference, isn't there, between the right answer and being said and the right answer and it being sincere. We know that the right answer ought to be, I do it by the grace of God. But is it sincere? Does that really reflect your life and mine? Do we actually know what it is to take in Christ, to commune with Christ, to draw from Christ? Do you know what it is to meditate upon His promises? Do you know what it is to memorize? Yes, but to meditate and draw deeply, drinking deeply on His promises. Do you know what it is to know the presence of Christ? To spend time with Christ so that when someone comes to you, you would be able to say sincerely, what were you doing? I was with Christ. I know Christ. Oh, I was reading His Word, but I was reading it from Christ. Uh, You know, a child comes and says, Dad, I heard you talking. You know what was going on? It's right to say, well, I was praying. But could it be sincere that you say, I was communing with Christ? That's the point. Faith goes to Christ, draws from Christ, and that's the only source that will lead us unto true obedience. Brethren, above and beyond all else, Exercise your faith in Christ. Draw from Christ. Because if you don't, all obedience that you offer, all rigor that you put yourself through, is but the obedience of a Pharisaic ape, however outwardly right and good it is. But all obedience done and performed by the strength and grace and gift of Christ is that beauty which Christ would have in us. So, brethren, here's your encouragement. Why is it that Christ is exhorting us in these ways? But because He wants you to know your privilege that is given and held forth to you. He's warning you of these other things and thus securing your attention to Himself. And you might say, I don't have what I ought to have. And you might be tempted then to do exactly what we've said don't do, to step into your own power and to seek to perform it rightly. When you discover you don't have what you ought to have, your need is to do as Christ is calling us to do, to go to Christ and to say, I need you to transform me here and here, that all that I do then would flow from you and flow on to you, to the glory and praise of your name now and forever. O oh, brethren, live by faith in the Son of God. Would you stand with me for prayer?